Hey, pooches. Pooch, pooches. What up, what up? How's, how's your week going? Crap. How's yours? Uh, equally as crap. <laughs> <laughs> I get guessing because I'm here, it's like crap with a little bit of sunshine. Well, I mean, it's quite, so we get plenty of sunshine. But this week has been exceptionally crap. Uh, silver lining, even though everybody has COVID, I don't. So oh, selfish, selfish silver lining. True, true. Um, yeah, no, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of killing time uh, until about a week from now where I go to Dubai uh, for the STEP conference, which I'm looking forward to. Oh, nice. Uh, should be a whole bunch of people I've not seen in a very long time. I think a lot of them are going to look at me like, like the Beatles got back together. Like what? <laughs> right. But um, yeah, no, I'm going to see, I'm going to catch up with a lot of people I've not seen uh, in quite some time and also spend some time in Dubai, which I haven't done in a while. And honestly, part of me just wants to go uh, work out and then patat next to the pool in the sunshine a little bit. Um, I've been spending way too much time at home, <clears throat> at home and I think I'm getting mm-hmm. a little bit stir crazy. Mm-hmm. So it'd yeah. be nice to get a little change of scenery. I feel that. I mean, even you know, speaking to the COVID point and just kind of being mindful of not turning this into a COVID episode. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think all of us were kind of are, are getting very, very fatigued and tired. Because I, I don't know if you remember the whole two weeks that we spent in the hotel and then the the additional two weeks that we had to spend when we got back to Kuwait and just were basically on room arrest, not even house arrest. Yeah. <laughs> Those, those, those are good times, but I think the, the one, so it was like the two weeks in the hotel. And then we had the, we had the very, very, um, what was it? The interesting experience of COVID tests when the pandemic first started, oh, which right. is so different than any other COVID test I've done since then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. So for the listeners, like January yeah. of 2020, I came to the States for you know a couple of meetings and shit. Um, and it was, I was supposed to be there for two months. Uh, you know, it was a bit of meetings and a bit of just like kind of having fun and staying at mm-hmm. your place in LA. Um, mm-hmm. The day I was supposed to leave was the day after they shut everything down because of COVID. Um, oh, so I ended up getting stuck in Los Angeles until July. We didn't leave until the yeah. 4th of July. So I spend the next few months there, uh, you know, Ramadan, all that. You were in your last semester of school. Um, yeah. Yeah, and there was a period. Too, yeah, and then there was a period towards the end of homelessness because <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you know you were out of school and the lease ran out and yeah, uh, yeah well obviously we weren't going to sign another lease so we had to go live at the uh, the Hilton. Oh, we did the one by the airport. Yeah, yeah. Yep, right by the LAX oh. sign. Oh man, remember that? Yeah. So yeah. The, the, we ended up booking like, you know, 200 different flights to go back to Kuwait and all of them get canceled, right? <laughs> right. Either because there are restrictions into Europe or to Dubai or it's one reason after the next, they keep getting canceled. Um, and then, and then uh, uh, they wanted a PCR test that was good for at least 48, 72 hours or whatever it was back then. Oh yeah. And yeah. We scour Los Angeles looking for any place <laughs> that could do a PCR test in time that didn't require like six months notice and you're first born in a kidney. <laughs> and it and it, and it turns out the nearest place to get tested was in Bakersfield. So if you're not familiar yeah. with California, that's a two-hour drive, two hours and change from Los Angeles. And that's assuming you don't hit any cra- any traffic, which you know, pandemic, uh, there really wasn't much traffic to be afraid of. Yeah. But uh, uh, I remember at one point we woke up, uh, I don't know, like four in the morning or something, and we get in the car. And of course, we overslept a little, so we didn't get anything to eat. But we get in the car, and we immediately start driving to Bakersfield, hoping to get there in time, and then not wind up in a six-hour long line when we're there or something. Uh-huh. So by the time we get to Bakersfield, like two, two and a half hours in, uh, they're, they're testing us like we're radioactive. <laughs> right. right? We're, we're in the middle of nowhere. There are these like tents set up that you got to order, that you have to um, yeah, like, it was, drive it was like a through. fairground. Yeah. Yeah, in a ridiculous. particular order. Because this, you know, this person took your information down. The other person actually did the test. The next person did whatever, and it was just this weird triage process. Right. And um, of course, the people are wearing like these respirators, and they're in these suits, like literally, like they're handling nuclear waste. Right. And um, <laughs> by the way, in July in Bakersfield. So imagine how brave those souls were. <laughs> Very. Right. 
yeah. So there's probably an inch of sweat in their boots. <laughs> so uh, we went and get te- we went and got tested, and they tested us with these. This was before they miniaturized the the little nose um, swab things. They were using yeah. these full size Q tip looking things. So imagine like a regular Q tip, but with a very sturdy stick, and it's about eight feet long. <laughs> and they bang it into your head with a hammer, like it's a chisel. Oh yeah, because because that's the, the those tests were basically before they realized that you could just keep it in the nose. You don't need to like scratch the back of your eye and like poke your cerebellum, make you forget math or some shit. Yeah, yeah. You you didn't have to get fingered in the brain, but they didn't know that. At the yeah. time. So right. we went and do those tests. Of course, when we walk out of the test, we're like teary eyed and can barely I could barely drive because I can't see shit because my ears are tearing and everything's red. And, <laughs> So right. uh, we do the test. We, we get back on the freeway immediately, spend no time in Bakersfield. Um, right back at what was it? I-10? I 10. I, no, not, not 10. I forgot, I forgot which route. The we one were on. Time maybe? Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. No, I, I completely forgot, man. I used to live there. I forgot. But Same. we ended up going, we're heading back to Los Angeles. And uh, um, of course, we haven't eaten anything. So we stopped by an IHOP to get breakfast. And we figured, hey, like, you know, we've been good little boys and uh, mm-hmm. uh we didn't cry during the test so we're gonna get a nice fancy <laughs> breakfast we walk okay. into ihop and this poor dude like you know this the, he looks us in the eye and he's like i'm sorry i can't let you eat here yeah. like what and he's like i'm sorry the governor just shut everything down again and and like, by just shut everything down isn't like five minutes after we yeah like in. like five ten minutes before we get there right yeah so we yeah. walk in it's quiet as death nobody's on the inside you know, and at this point, we had been driving for about three, three, four hours, maybe roughly total, including the time we, we spent inside the car waiting to get tested because obviously we never left because oh, right, we're radioactive. Right. Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, nature calls. I step out, I, I walk into the IHOP. I'm looking at the guy. I'm basically crip walking to prevent myself from like pissing my pants. Yeah. And I ask him whether I can use the bathroom. He's like, Yeah, sure. Clearly seeing that I am doing the moonwalk to get to the bathroom. So, uh, by the way, uh, random IHOP manager in outside of Bakersfield who uh, let me use the bathroom, uh, even though Newsom would have put him in prison for it. Thank you very much. You saved the day. You're a hero. <laughs> yes, you you are a hero. Oh yeah. Um, so and we ended up ordering to go, and we start eating like the sloppiest, slobberiest pancakes in a car. Mm-hmm. And the while, while listening. Yeah, while, while, while listening to CNBC about how like the Dow's down a thousand points today. Yeah, yeah. Basically, we're we're in a car in California having pancakes in a parking lot, and at the same time, like Jim Cramer is talking about how it's like Armageddon in New York. Yeah, yeah. It's good times. Man, that was such a weird time. We will never was, do anything like that ever again. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not trying to like tempt fate here, but yeah, I, I really think that's that was a very unique period of time for anyone. But but speaking speaking to your point about that, I think we thought that after we had come back to Kuwait, that that you know things would kind of normalize or kind of die down. But do you remember the whole process that we had to do once we got to Kuwait? Oh, <laughs> so we get. <laughs> When, when we get to the airport and then there's like a, a triage area where we have to go. So it's not like you go get, um, it, it's not to the passports, the bags. Mm-hmm. So it takes this triage area, you know, take down information, ask you where you've been, all that stuff. And then they test us again. And it was the single most traumatic experience of all of COVID. I like got all of COVID. All it of was, COVID. So they test us with, again, these giant Q-tips that made the ones from the States look like a joke. <laughs> but instead of just going into your nasal cavity, they jam it all the way back. It, it looks like a javelin and they're trying to shove it in your face. And so they, it goes all the way back. It stays there for a little while. They twist it for like two or three minutes, pull mm-hmm. it out, and then do the same to the other nostril. I'm just sitting there like, <laughs> you know, and this yeah. poor nurse, like realizing that I'm acting like some, uh, uh, like some poor animal at the slaughter. <laughs> like begging her to stop uh you know she by the way like i didn't feel my nose for like a solid few days like i needed to recover after that it just it felt oh, so bad it was it was horrible. it was miserable i yeah. i dude if i would i mean i would rather sit on a cactus than have to go through <laughs> that experience again oh yeah i i, I totally relate and feel that because I, I think I honestly think those like 14 days that we had to spend in quarantine weren't for COVID. It was just to recover from that test. 
Yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, it's a few hours after. <laughs> <laughs> You're like smelling blood, and your eyes are all teary. And yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, you you horrible. smell blood and like pennies, like this strong copper metallic, <laughs> yeah. which was, by the way, oddly enough, is I actually uh, found out a little while ago. That's um, it's one of the telltale signs of of being blasted by radiation. Is that your mouth tastes like metal? Oh, really? <laughs> yes. So if your mouth suddenly tastes like metal, like you're 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 dead. Run. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, no, that, cause I remember that. And I remember just like having that taste in my mouth and just watching the last dance. Cause I think that it just came out when, when we started. Yeah. Quarantining. Yeah. Yeah. What a weird time. <laughs> I think nice. I was going to say like July, 2020, which is when we first came back to Kuwait to July, 2021, which is when I kind of came here, it, it, you know, we were all in one place. We were just at the house, but it was pretty crazy. And like how much shit changed, you know, I think the very interesting part about it was like when, and I think you can, you can attest to this because we were just, you know, you, you for, for abstract specifically, which is, you know, what I'm working on right now, you saw it from an idea to where we are right now. And you kind of understand what kind of happened between July, 2020 and July, 2021, where we basically went from, we have a side project, but we're in the, in the middle of this massive pivot. We just graduated all the way to, you know, fundraising over Zoom. I think that was, that was a, honestly the craziest part of that year, in my opinion. Yeah. I, think that I was, mean, at, at one point that was just seen as such a bizarre thing to do, like to consider an investment purely through Zoom. And now everybody true. does it all the time. Yeah. It was, it was pretty at the time, like what was very surprising to it was like, sure, it was a new way of raising because it's just Zoom and email chains and all that ty- different type of stuff. But what was very interesting was like the small exposure to anticipating the type of investors you meet in a fundraise that I picked up from venture deals. The fact that that carried into raising remotely during a pandemic was actually very surprising. I think yeah. so. Yeah. But before I get into that, though, a bit of a disclaimer. So Abstract, which is the company that I'm, that I'm a co-founder of. We've raised an okay amount of money, um, part of which you can find in our crunch base if you look us up or anything. But since I'm CTO or kind of head of engineering there, there's not much firsthand experience that I have with this, with like actively fundraising and talking to investors. But um, quite often, VCs would often ask for a little more clarification on how something works. So they'd like to meet the co-founders before they write the check. So that's where I kind of become part of the process. Uh, And not to point out the obvious, I won't be like naming any names because you know, I, I love my job and I don't want to do anything to it. But um, yeah, I think I think what was very interesting was like at our stage, when we were trying to fundraise, what mattered a lot was just telling the story, which is like how we got here, where we were headed. And, you know, the pandemic, of course, played into it. So when we were all, on all of these Zoom calls, um, a majority of the ones that ended up investing, where we kind of perfected that storytelling aspect of it. Um, we're basically the type that went, hell yeah, sign me the fuck up. Like, this is awesome. And I love this. And I, I just want to be there. And, and those people we love, and they're super proactive in our company's health and direction, even today. Yeah. Um, but, but the thing is like, you were pitching people who are already like neck deep in your industry and knew everything that was wrong with it and how you were fixing it. Right. Yeah. There wasn't much of a learning curve on those calls. It was like, yo, this is what we do. And this is how it fixes the thing that, you know, is fucked up. So easy sell. Right. Yeah, exactly. But I think even even with that group of people, where it gets a little funny or odd has to be with all the other ones, the ones that basically didn't go, hell yeah, sign me the F up. Mm-hmm. Um, ones where it kind of took a couple of meetings to convince them to hop on board or leave. So the, the, the other kind of type or container that I can put investors in that I've seen was basically the, the immediate no's. Basically, it was like, no, no uh, business like no no fit between the investors like investment thesis for his fund and and us or no fit between the founders of the market or just anything like that any excuse that was pulled up that was like immediately no i'm i'm not interested those people i kind of liked personally because the answer was clear from the get-go like i i don't know how how that kind of looks like on your part like have you or, or would you kind of classify yourself as an immediate no type investor if it is an hey? opportunity that yeah uh, no, uh, I, I would not do that because even if I'm, while they are pitching, absolutely certain that I do not want to invest in this, 
There have been certain periods in the past where I said no. And then shortly after the call, I had second thoughts. So I like to let it sit for at least 24 hours, but I like to get a decision out if it's a no within 24 hours, only because I want to be absolutely sure there's nothing I'm missing as they're speaking. Right. I feel because, because the one, like, I feel like with that approach, the one kind of slippery slope or like one hole you kind of don't want to fall into is, is definitely like the slow nose or the unsure people. Right. Um, where if they, you know, and, and we, we came across a lot of them basically, and I can kind of walk through a couple of types here, but where, where, you know, if it was a large office, so if this, this massive firm and there was like a lot of people there, um, there was a lot of back and forth between the partners on whether we were a good investment, which is, you know, a normal discussion to have. But on the founder side, the very interesting thing is once, once they'd like to meet customers and they take like customers' times and advisors' time and current investors' times, like all that, once it starts, once they start looping all of that stuff in, um, the process just gets really heavy and just difficult to manage. Yeah, because because like, I'm not sure what kind of goes through the investor's mind, but on our part, it goes like, okay, um, this seems like a lot of hesitation. I mean, there are doing due diligence, which I kind of understand, but yeah, but um, it feels like way too much DD for something so early stage. Yeah, yeah. I think, I've honestly I think like was, if I'm like, talking to a founder for the first time, literally within like the first twenty minutes of talking to them, I've already made up my mind. Really? Yes. Because what, if it's super kind of... early. What am I betting on? business plan true i feel i I think yeah that's why it goes to like yeah if it's early stage like the one the one thing that you need to focus on is just the you know how do you even get here where you headed you know the storytelling aspect of it again yes um but yeah because once once they start going okay we'd like to talk to customers and we customers are on trials they're, they're not even paying and then they loop in current advisors and investors and it just got a little too messy um, so, so those, those are like some of the firms that we've seen that were like slow nose or, or, or maybes I'd like to say, but and setters. if it, yeah, but, but the people that caused the most pain, I have to say, were the angel groups. So they're basically, you know, not, not necessarily syndicates, but it's just a group of, a group of angel investors that like to pull their money together or something like that. By the way, um, the, the concept of an angel group to me is just in and of itself somewhat suspect. That's kind of true. Like, like why, if, if yeah. it's a group. I understand why you would be doing that to share deal flow, right? Mm-hmm. But if you are an angel and you need to join a group to find something that you want to invest in, as opposed to it being kind of a supplementary source, then mm-hmm. you're kind of a shitty investor. Because I mean, that's yeah, right. And then the the other thing is, like, why is an angel group making decisions by consensus? Because it just feels like you disaggregated a VC, where like you're all the GPs and you're also the LPs, but nobody really signed an LP agreement, and we're going to act in the, like. I don't get the, I, I, I don't get it. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't, okay, whatever. I'm going to go on a rant and it's going to piss people off. So just go back to your point. <laughs> I feel, I feel no. Okay. Okay. Here's going back to my rant about everything from the founder's perspective. Um, the, the process I think it takes to get an answer from one of these angel groups will likely last your entire round because we've, we, we've had to do like so many document, like documents that we need to, to set up pages and pages and pages of just, reasoning and like storytelling and and just like saying you know we're not a theranos pretty much is that what like I, i'm not sure if that's a message that we wanted to get across to them but yeah um not only is it the multiple documents but the interview processes and the pseudo pitch competitions where like there's rounds i don't know if like they set up some sort of like playoff system for startups to see who's going to get an investment or something yeah. Um, only, only to be told that you're either too early stage or like markets too small because we're focusing on a niche or something. Um, those are just a headache in general. I think the last type that we kind of came through with these like very slow nose was the individual investors. So just angel investors, basically. Um, it was always like for those spe- specifically the slow nose and the maybes, um, it was always an issue of communication. I think, I don't know if, like, would love to hear kind of your side of the end, not to say that you are a slow no, but um, response times kind of go through the roof, if yeah. that makes any sense. And because it is a big potential investment, you you kind of keep your end of the deal up and you make sure that you tend to their requests, you put them in touch with um, any customers or walk them through something that they, you know, kind of have an, an, an issue with or, or, or there's something that they're missing their DD, but... Yeah. Um, 
it, it just became, it becomes so painful. Cause like you send them a follow-up, you send them another follow-up, more follow-ups. And like, next thing you know, it's like three weeks. And then they just pop up out of nowhere and go like, I'd like to be put in touch with this person and you just have to do it. But then you go back to follow-ups and follow-ups and follow-ups. It just, it's just, it, it just makes it's a colossal the wait waste of time. Painful. It's yeah, a colossal exactly. waste of time. Yeah. By the way, That's I mean, I've, I've, I've had uh, companies that you know, I've been involved with that go through that process, mm-hmm. where they talk to an investor. You know, they want a demo of this. They want to talk to that guy. They want to see these documents. They want to see a whole bunch of numbers nobody has ever, ever thought of asking for ever, right. ever, and ever con- any context ever, ever before. And exactly. then they want to see it again, and then they want to see it in a different form. And then, by the way, they want to talk to another uh, customer, uh, and then they want a demo of the new product. And then you have to walk them through the product pipeline, and then it's a no. Yeah, I'm like, bro, people have put up two <laughs> to three times the amount of money you are talking about for like one fiftieth of the effort. And exactly. this is actually one of the good things of having quote unquote, not necessarily that I believe this, but too many investors in the market is that oh, interesting. You are forced by competitive pressure to cut a check faster. That is kind of true, because because but but do you think founders can actually say like oh I got better investors or is it the whole just yes. I have other deals that I can tend to oh yeah yeah I know I've seen I've seen founders like put their foot down it's like yo th- these are our terms we're gonna operate this way and I'm not responding to your crazy DD do you want in or out and we invest interesting it. yeah and you invested yes oh and so, in retrospect they're well they're one of the the better ones one of the better investments true because like especially the founders that are able to do that in a time where they are fundraising and they need money it's it's mm-hmm. yeah it's usually the type it, it, it's a it's a sign of a, of a pretty solid business i guess is the best way i'd like to put it but it's it's a sign I, of a pretty solid founder and a founder too yeah yeah and i mean i think, I think you know i think you know peter Thiel talks about like you know they're they have a very mild form of asperger's and okay i think you you can add a little bit to that which is they have a, a, a mild form of arrogance there's a mild True. arrogance to them there's kind of like this swagger slash bravado of, listen, bro, you're playing by my rules. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I like that. Words, if, if you don't like it, you can go put together some like, you know, 20 million tweet long thread and see who likes it. But <laughs> I, I don't have right. time for this shit. So get on True. with it. I like yeah. that. Like, and especially like being able to switch that off. Because once that arrogance kind of gets, you know, Napoleon level, then that just becomes way too much because you get you know no no no. again you can't be hyper arrogant but you need to be like on this uh blurry line between extreme confidence and mild arrogance yeah i mean especially when you're fundraising because yeah you you definitely have to put the foot down like next thing you know it's all a matter of control i think is 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 you know in any in any fundraising stage and like needing to clearly communicate your needs is is necessary and sometimes yeah you but you you can't that. reek of desperation that too yeah i i do see that because then yeah because because if you reek of desperation or you show any sign of it the the one thing they're going to do is take advantage of it with like horrible non-founder friendly terms yeah right you know that i've come across see when he's when we say we don't want to name names it's to avoid the trouble but you know mm-hmm. as i say it i really really want to name names um, <laughs> i have come across some founders who are utterly destructive and i warn literally anyone uh from from working with them i tell them it's like take the wow. meeting as a courtesy you can shake his hand you can smile in his face but don't take a nickel from that prick that is a viper's nest and he's a twat and don't take his money wow um Again, I would really love to name names, but um, <laughs> same. But you know, listen, I, I've come across like all kinds of investors, um, mm-hmm. and I've been a different kind of investor to different companies. Like you know, you can't you can't have the same face on all the time. But mm-hmm. what guides my thinking is the idea that I'm betting on a person and not a business plan. So I know it's more mm-hmm. likely than not that the investment is going is not going to work out. Like, that's just the truth. That's how the math works out. But um, you know, it, when it's doing really well and it's doing really poorly i have never seen the situation uh in any way shape or form get improved by the investor deciding to become a bully it just does not work that way mm-hmm. not in my experience so like as the investor like you know it is incumbent upon you to help when you can to help quote unquote put out fires mm-hmm. uh and sometimes helping honestly sometimes helping means learning to shut the fuck up because interesting excessively 
uh, active investors, people who act like they're one of the founders, people who want to intervene in every uh, business process. Mm-hmm. You are literally one of the most destructive forces in this business. Really? You are an extreme net negative to you, to everyone on the cap table, to the business, to the founders, to the employees, to everyone. These micromanager type VCs who, you know, even if they're not on the board, by the way, will act like it. And yeah. they act like it without, as if they have never heard of the concept of fiduciary duty. They believe they're think- preserving their capital and they're not. So, you know, do, do you learning- think it gets. Do you think it gets even messier when there's emotions involved? Yes. Like the minute, the minute, like some startup hits an obstacle, they immediately go like, "Oh, I knew this wasn't the plan," and they just like lash out at you, basically. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, they they definitely like to look. Um, the one thing I can't stand is is a toxic investor. I'll give you an example. Okay, so I know mm-hmm. the founder of an, of uh, um, let's go. Okay, it's e-commerce. It's technically in the e-commerce space. Um, that company now, and you know, everybody's e-commerce uh, segment of the portfolio did exceptionally well during, during the pandemic, especially 2020 when, you know, the numbers went through the roof. Right. Um, in this particular case, the company did not perform as well as most people would have guessed they would have given the circumstances. Right. Okay. So the, the company, unfortunately, it ultimately folded, even though I'm a big fan of the founder, I think he's a super hard worker, super smart guy. And I'd back him again in a heartbeat. The company mm-hmm. ultimately folded. But there was one particular investor who sent the founder an email. And I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but they were basically scolding them for not kind of making the most of the market conditions and returning more on their capital, which A, huh. what are you doing? Are you, are you basically pointing the finger and accusing the, uh, uh, accusing the founder of not acting in the best interest of the business? Or do you just not understand risk? True. Because I was going to so, say, like, the, the last thing you need as a founder, like, that's about, that's, you know, a founder of a company that's about to fold because yeah. of the pandemic, because of something that no one saw coming is, yeah, I don't, I don't understand an email scolding people for not taking advantage of market conditions. Yeah. Like I mean, dude, you are, the, the founder is not your employee. You don't get to, and if yeah. they were your employee, like, you, you treat them like some, misbehaving intern like that's not the 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 investor um investor founder relationship um look there are all kinds of different flavors of trash investor and Mm -hmm. these are the ones you really see when shit hits the fan so one thing i tell investors is that listen i go to war for my startups i use that phrase i will literally give you names of 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 founders and you can call them and ask them whether i've said it before it's like i Mm -hmm. will go to war for my startups and i know that you know it being a war then success is not linear you're going to lose ground. You're going to win ground. And you can't be, you know, the sour old fuck every time something bad happens. Like you have to understand that you are taking on, you know, you are risking capital and there is risk in execution and you are side by side with this founder. And as soon as you start like the infighting in the trenches, you've lost the war. But I'll give you an example of a real trash investor, especially the types that show up when things aren't rosy. So Mm -hmm. the real trash investor is the investor who threatens to dump the stock uh, by the next financing round, like on secondaries. Or even outside of secondaries, will find will will make it known to the cap table and to the founder that they intend to dump their stock, because you know either like a personal squabble with the founder, or they didn't hit mm-hmm. a particular metric that you know they had mentioned during the raise, or or something. Oh. Like even if they don't ultimately do it, just saying that the sentiment, the signal, that will murder the round. You know, new investors don't want to touch anything that prior investors are dying to throw away, right? Yeah. So. It's, it's just, it's enormously negative. And also, also, by the way, like, you know, mm-hmm. it, it proves to me that the investor is an idiot who is probably investing daddy's money or money that they earned by the luck of the draw because they were in the right place at the right time and don't really have a brain. So look at the performance. Like I said, it, it is like war. The performance of the best companies is not linear. So why would you want to dump the stock in a business as soon as there's like, you know, the first sign of trouble on the horizon? Like imagine having dumped Airbnb or Uber stock the second they started like fighting the New York Hotel Commission or like the taxi commissions or, or some oh, other regulatory yeah. body. Well, I mean, in retrospect, you would be a colossal idiot. That's, you know, yeah. one of the, um, if, if venture markets were more liquid, we would be mm-hmm. talking about the greatest investors of the being, being the ones who actually knew how to hodl. Hodl. Yeah. <laughs> right. Slip, slipping into crypto again. <laughs> no, no, we're not doing that. Nope. 
Not doing that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're, we're on a good streak of non Web3 crypto topics right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm yes. liking it. But yes. Um, no, but but I think like the, the interesting part about that is, is um, yeah, I mean, it just it just ruins the relationship. And I, and I think, you know, this this kind of goes to a, a point that I was going to mention about, you know, we, we have those we have all these investor stereotypes while you're fundraising. But now post raise, um, the investors start fitting into different containers. So you have the ones that like are okay with quarterly check-ins and just you come in maybe once a year, once every couple of months and go like, hey, everything's yeah. great or hey, nothing's great. And like, they don't mind that. Um, my favorite type, I do have to say, um, are the ones that basically become not not micromanaging, but they're super proactive in the sense that like, it's almost daily communication of like, hey, here's this that might be very beneficial for you. Or like they're you know they're just a text away and you know that text is going to be answered immediately you know i yeah. i really like those types specifically because you almost start being friends with them basically mm-hmm. and and you run into them on a walk and like at different events and like you just catch up and it almost gets to a point where you just stop talking about the business and you just start talking about startups and like relations in general which is pretty cool like i, I like the ones that boil into relation boil or like turn into relationships like that yeah which I suppose um, because, is far healthier than having a relationship with an investor where you want to break their jaw every time they see them. Which basically, you know, sadly, <laughs> I, I know founders who are in that position. Really? Yeah. That's just yeah. Those those suck because I know for the ones that are super proactive, like the minute shit hits the fan, yeah. they they kind of know what role to take, and I really really like that. Yeah. If that makes I mean, any sense. Um. Yeah, I mean, like if they see a fire, they they run for the bucket like like the founder would. But you know, I'm just saying, I know a couple founders who, mm-hmm. you know, hypothetically, if they were given the opportunity to like Sparta kick one of their investors into a volcano, they would totally do it. Jeez, and I think I think it's specifically those that just don't understand the dynamics of that relationship. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's very easy for an investor, especially to to quote what you said earlier, like that investor using daddy's money basically, um, to just go well, I'm giving you this money. So therefore I'm superior to you and you have to report to me. Right. You know, yeah. that, that as a foundation of, I think any relationship just, just does not work. Um, because yeah, the, you know, the minute shit hits the fan, instead of saying, okay, this is my money, this is my investment. And I like, I really like the founder as a human being and I'm going to help him through it. It's a, you know, you better not fuck this up. And, and, and that just turns into a very toxic relationship. There are, there are honestly some, um, investors out there who see founders as these starlets who are trying to make it, and they see themselves mm-hmm. as Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's, it's like, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I got what it takes for you to make it. What are you willing to to do for me? You know, right? Yeah. You know, and they think they'll never get caught. And I'm still waiting for me too to like really properly come to VC, but it's a separate topic. But, <laughs> but, it, dude, it's it's. Um, I don't know. They're, they're sick. They, the capital is not what's in short supply. It's it's yeah. excellent founders who happen to be in short supply. If you want to ding that, there's plenty of those. But it's the ex- excellent founders who are in short supply. And that's just, by the way, the the concept of an awful investor, you have the types like the ones I've already described who exist all the time and in mm-hmm. every market condition. And then you have the types that kind of appear depending on, uh, you know, factors unique to the year or to the period like awful investor of 2020 or 2021 i think you know if i were to give out an award it would be the ones who want to renegotiate signed term sheets right oh interesting yeah or once we get into like the legally binding phase of the process they want to renegotiate so there's been quite a bit of this actually going on fairly recently as a result of like um, um public equity markets repricing technology assets Mm-hmm. So after the, the the Facebook dive and all the other ones, and I know I mentioned uh, yeah. Facebook specific because of how huge it was. It was but massive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like enterprise SaaS, for example, the multiples have have majorly contracted compared to what they were like six months ago. Very true. Um, and that has caused some trickle down effect in the later stages um, in, in the private market. And now, to a degree, you're starting to see it in some of the earlier stage stuff. Right. There are folks out there going out and trying to renegotiate because they realize that, you know, they, they kind of chase things a little too far thinking the party would last a little longer and it didn't. 
Now I have heard, I don't, I, this has not been confirmed. I have heard, you know, through friends of friends that both Tiger Global and Co2 have begun uh, renegotiating term sheets. Now, again, mm. Tiger Global and, and Co2 are not exactly seed investors and have not been up until like uh, two years ago. Prior to mm. that, you were talking about like public, public equities focused and like pre-IPO. That was yeah. their mandate. They weren't really super early stage investors. That was a really recent development. But um, you know, th those two have begun to go back and you know, they have figured out that they have deployed way too much money way too quickly at all time high valuations and they're about mm -hmm. to pay for it. Right. So, and again, this is even happening with like smaller shops. I'm not talking about the big boys who decided to go early, even, even early stage funds. I can think of at least two examples of uh, early stage funds where the GPs now are beginning to panic internally because, oh shit, uh, you know, we kind of, we, we kind of got a little too excited there. And now they have gone ultra conservative, you know, trying oh, to preserve capital. And, you know, in, in some cases, in some cases, they are actually going so far as to uh, not just try to renegotiate term sheets, mm -hmm. but um, actually, you know what, listeners, you're about to hear a gap because I realized I gave away too much. Oh. So and we're back. back. <laughs> I love that. Beautiful. I, I, I wish... I just, I, I, my goal in life, before we get back to like your point, is to just run for office and then introduce a bill where on a podcast or on any sort of social platform, I can name names and talk about anything and just like somehow be legally protected. Yeah. Even though somebody yeah. literally got convicted for murder because they mouthed off on TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I just want to go like, oh. This guy's an asshole. Fuck this guy. This guy's awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, we 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 did this with our business, and that turned into that. And like, just this 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 can be like a four hour episode of just call her daddy, but for startups. Basically. <laughs> what is it? Wait, there's a show called Call Her Daddy. Yeah, you haven't heard of it? No. What is that? It's it's great. It's um, Alex Cooper on Spotify. Is this not safe for work? Um. It's it's not safe for startups, so yeah, and not not related to anything that we're doing. Okay. Anyways, so back to the point that I was making, um, I I have seen some funds actually begin considering uh, a little more aggressive uh, secondary transactions from prior funds, just to generate a little bit of liquidity to offset the unrealized losses, just to appease uh, you know a handful of very important LPs. Now, as an LP, I don't know why the hell you would feel better seeing people take profit early, knowing that the long-term going interest of the business is actually quite good, you know, in terms of the outlook. But whatever, they'll do what they want. The last two years, what's happened with this massive distortion in valuation and pricing and you know and inflation and how that you know factors into people's uh, desired ROI. It's just kind of broken the system and caused people to take uh, bets that you just would not take in, in normal times. Mm -hmm. So I don't find this all that, you know, shocking. Like, of course, there's yeah. going to be a consequence at some point. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think the, the one thing, you know, if, if I was a CEO of a startup and I was trying to gauge what an, a relationship with a, with a VC would look like, um, the one thing I do is like, yeah, talk to some of their portfolio companies, but just go, okay, like when shit hit the fan, i.e. not maybe not with you, but with the fund, like when, when that investor is extremely stressed, does he turn into a monster or is he like reasonable about different stuff? Or does yeah. he know how to like stress manage basically? But think here's the thing, what, what you mentioned, like not everybody has that luxury. You're assuming that a founder has their choice of an investor. Sometimes it's true. the only term sheet you got and you got to sign, man, or else you can't yeah. make payroll. True. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an issue that you can run into. But I feel like at least, you know, we, we haven't really run into this issue, knock on wood. But when, when you get to a point like that, what's like the threshold or the decision making process for going, okay, this is a, I, I should sign it because I, I don't really like the investor, but I should still sign it because I want to pay my employees. Or if it's like, yeah, for the sake of the business, 
I'd rather take the risk of getting another check from someone else and potentially folding. Um, I just do not want to sign a term sheet from this specific person. Thinking of uh, two instances where this happened with people I know, um, you will you will happily take a check uh, from the biggest asshole investor in the world uh, in order to avoid missing payroll. Really? I, I don't know anybody who got on their high horse and turned down money when they were that desperate. Nobody. So, like, so like, say for example, like you. If you're your a Silicon Valley fan, you take money from Russ Hanneman. <laughs> yeah. You take money from Russ Hanneman if you're running out of money and none of the funds want to touch you. Interesting, but then it, it does it turn into some some sort of like reasoning down the road? Is like okay, maybe you get someone, maybe you get an investor who's like kind of, you know, has has a bit more of an ethical approach to things, and he goes like, oh, you took money from Russ Hanneman when you should have done xyz so i'm not going to invest because that is that a reality basically no i mean at one point people wanted to stop taking money from certain sources for whatever reason but that Mm -hmm. fizzled fairly quickly and i can't i can't really think of an instance where uh you know a a round fell apart because some uh, uh commitments pulled out due to the presence of somebody or another on a cap table i can't think of that happening right I think yeah, that, that that's not an issue that I've I've heard of too much. I think if yeah. anything, plus who are you taking money from? Like Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein? Like <laughs> that would be, yeah, yeah. I mean, nowadays it's like what Jamath, but that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, he's not totally canceled though. You could still safely take money from Jamath. No, yeah, that's true. But that but, blew yeah, over that, in a week. That is kind of true. I'm actually surprised at how fast that went over. Yeah, I, I feel like. The, the whole Twitter community or the, 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 what's it called? The PC Twitter community just went, you know, that's below my line. I don't care. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've noticed when you, when you don't get as panicky about, uh, you know, the nerds grabbing pitchforks, mm-hmm. uh, it, it kind of fizzles. Like they tried to cancel, um, Chappelle didn't work. Rogan didn't work. Oh, right. I mean, right. I'm not saying I agree with Jamath's take on the on the Uyghur situation. I think the Uyghur situation is disgusting and horrific, uh-huh. but uh, uh, the attempts to cancel Jamath fizzled. Yeah, and I think I think that's actually one thing that I'd I'd be very interested in like figuring out as well. Of just again from a founder's perspective, say that you were, you know, you have an investor on your cap table who's famous, right? Yeah, and and. You know, is, is that even, you know, you know, it's good. It's good money. You need the money. You know, the relationship's going to be all right. But how do you kind of process, you know, working with someone who just not only has a fund to run, but has a personality to run as well, almost? I feel like that's, that's a little interesting. It gets a little murky, I feel. I mean, when you take money from them and you're afraid that they're going to say something that's going to uh, negatively affect your business. Yeah, yeah. Of, of like, say for example that that you know, there's an early stage investor. Um, I take money from them, and then you know, when we get to our Series B, he does something controversial. Um, oh yeah, they do something super messed up and controversial. It's like, okay, is that going to affect me? Is it just going to affect him? How's that going to affect like the relationship that we have? Of you know, because now he has his own fires to put out. Does this mean that he's not going to be in the trenches with me? Those types of like worries and thoughts. I mean, I, I've seen that happen with founders. I've never seen it happen because of a VC misbehaving. Like yeah. If a founder does something shady, they could really quickly murder your round, like they did with um, Dispo, remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, like, that whole story. Everybody forgot Dispo, right? $200 million yeah. uh, valuation on Series A. Everyone has completely, totally forgotten Dispo. Um, True. Because, I mean, I mean, dude, he deserved it, given what he did. But yeah. But um, yeah, no, I don't think I can't think of an instance where a VC misbehaving has killed a round, only because of like reputational reasons, not because like they fucked around with the round. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't look investor selection from a founder perspective; like it's an art and a science. Um, True. So I mean, just like investors are betting on founders based on their gut feeling, like in the super early stages, the founder mm-hmm. kind of has to go with their gut deciding. Uh, yeah, if if you even want to pitch an investor or even accept their money if they offer it, <clears throat> and again, True. not every founder has the luxury of saying saying no to committed capital. 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like if, if, if you hop on an opportunity that puts you in a position where you do have multiple term sheets then that like it's, it's people very quickly get carried away with the fact that they have multiple, ter- multiple term sheets and just don't understand, you know, that, that yeah. there's, there's a very sensitive decision process that needs to happen basically. Cause yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that that's paid off specifically for the type that I mentioned, um, which is like the, those investors that are just the right amount of proactive where you almost turn into friends with them. And when you meet up, you don't even talk about the business. If there's nothing to yeah. talk about, mm-hmm. um, those guys are per, like, are awesome. And I, and I, I say that because there's like, take, for example, um, like one of the investors we had, we were trying to get a hire, uh, to, to accept a job offer. And there was a big hire It's a very key role. And, uh, you know, we were kind of worried because we had at that point had answered enough about our company. Um, but we were needing someone else to come in and go like, Hey, this is a great opportunity. You should probably take it because we just can't say that for us as, as like part of the company, if that makes any sense. So what that investor actually ended up doing was, uh, he, he, you know, took 30 minutes of his day to hop on a zoom call and basically pitched the opportunity to work at abstract to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the end of that, uh, job offer accepted and and that that person's like working with us now um i feel like that you know those small things kind of go a long way in the sense of like it's it's 30 minutes to make one single hire but that one hire is gonna you know especially if your team that's less than 10 is gonna go a pretty long way so that that type of proactiveness is one thing that i i you know moving forward whether it's with abstract or if i'm you know lord knows how many years down the road if i'm the ceo of a company that's the type of stuff that I'd personally start to gauge before accepting money from someone. If, if I could mm-hmm. not just like shut up and take the money basically. Yeah. I mean, you, you always want to ask other founders how an investor may or may not have come through for them in a clutch moment. Mm-hmm. I've seen companies basically saved by a pro- proactive investor, literally saved by a proactive investor. Really? Like in, in so? one instance, in one instance, uh, there was a company that was basically getting skewered by um, a regulator. I, I mean, regulator. if I go into if I go into too much detail, people are going to know exactly who I'm talking about. But there was a regulator oh. in the U.S. who was very heavy-handed in their approach to a particular, okay. let's call it, uh, media company. Okay. Did I give it away? No, not really. I, I don't even know what that is. Okay. So they they were very, very heavy-handed, right? And let's just say everything went away when the investor spoke to that particular commissioner who used to be a client of theirs, made it clear that they were not doing what they were accused of doing, and therefore not in violation of the certain regulation, and the whole thing went away overnight in a week. Wow. Yeah. And by the way, this isn't like that- you know. This isn't any kind of chicanery. It's just uh, um, it, nothing. No, there's no funny business. They just they made the legal case that it is not what you think it is. This is the case we made. This is a brief we've we've written for you. Um, check it out. Commissioner read through it. You know, drop the topic. Wow. Yeah. Now, being you know, you you probably know. You've definitely not to point out the obvious, but you know a ton of. Your your network of VCs is fairly large. Do you think a majority of them are of that type, or are they mostly just putting on a, a you know, a face that's like, "Don't fuck up my money," when they talk to founders? Like, what's what's the um, what's more common? I'd say it's it's a nine to one ratio of good to bad VC. Interesting. And out of out of the bad ones, there's like one in ten who is truly genuinely a twat that needs to be shoved in a cannon and fired into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> but even That's great. So, so, so the, the bad VCs who do not fall in that particular bucket, I think that's mm-hmm. why most founders need to have a particular skill set of learning to, to manage kind of unruly investors, especially mm-hmm. if they have a board seat and they can become extremely annoying because now they have votes over, you know, key action matters within the company. Right. But yeah, you know, the, the real trouble is when you think they're one thing and then they get on the board and then they're another thing. And yeah. now getting them off the board is infinitely harder than getting them on as an investor or kind of winning over their investment. 
um, especially if they intend on being stubborn and they came in very early with a very large amount and therefore own like, I don't know, a huge chunk of the company um, yeah. relatively. So in, in, in those particular cases, I think learning how to de-escalate arguments becomes an extremely important skill set mm-hmm. because, you know, board fights can be something that can sink around when you desperately need it it could be something that prevents a pivot when it's it's the, absolutely the correct way to go forward you need to learn how to you know take that board member aside sit them down present the facts calmly concisely clearly and make it known to them that this decision is a result of you know a very very uh, closely calculated thought process and built mm-hmm. on very solid assumptions and you just need to trust me on this and that's what it comes down to. You need to talk to the board member and understand that you took a bet on me and my judgment in the early days, and you just simply need to make good on that bet. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Because yeah, I'm still the same founder. Right. Still the same founder, still working with the same type of stuff. You know, Lord knows what that founder's backing or experiences, but you know, it's it's especially if that VC looks for the founder and 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 his or her personality or like traits and, and stress management. That shit's just going to carry along with the company. It's not going to change overnight. I think I think it's very much just that. And then, more importantly, um, the one point that, you, that that I think you touched on quite a bit is just being diplomatic about it. Because I know it's very easy to to you know be super frank and 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 fall into these squabbles where relationships can get pretty toxic. But I think the 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 one nice thing, and this is actually something that our investor told us, is um, we like we don't expect good news all the time when shit hits the fan, call it out, let us know about it immediately because we can take the appropriate steps to get it over with. Excessively Um, good news all the time is honestly very suspect. It is. It is scary. I think, I think even on any end, whether it's, you know, I, it, it reminds me a lot of like, you know, North Korean news basically where everything is like, wow, this is awesome. And like, yeah. No. <laughs> like there's multiple fires you need to be putting out. Supreme leader, make no mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the founder, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Servers went down. Like, no, our computers were napping. Nothing happened. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> right. it. An investor at the end of the day is human. And yeah. as human beings, they can make dumb, panicky mistakes when they're being dumb and panicky. So True. it's just one more thing to navigate. This is why, you know, as a founder, you gotta, you gotta keep your cool when your investors won't mm-hmm. and be very, very calm and in, in, in learning how to diffuse these matters. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very much a, it's very much a, you know, definitely got to take it, take it issue by issue. But the big part is, yeah, selecting investors is an art and you're not, you know, when, when you pick them, like it, the, the relation, the relationship is not completely bound by the startup. It's, it's, you know, it can go multiple startups and go lifelong even. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just one of, uh, one of the many, many arts that founders need to perfect nowadays to, to, to just run a company. Yeah. You know, I remember a, a scene of, um, a scene from, have you watched the crown on Netflix? I, I've watched snippets of it, but no, I haven't watched like the entire thing. Okay, so there's there's one bit where the Queen Mother is ter- is telling Queen Elizabeth that uh-huh. sometimes the hardest thing to do is to stay silent. So what they mean by that is, you know, the monarch obviously is just as human as the rest of us, and she has her political opinions, and legally she can you know sway the mind of the prime minister to kind of influence legislation or a, a, a certain you know act of government one way or another, yeah. but the queen must remain silent publicly. She cannot state her political opinions. She cannot go on TV and say this, that, and and the other thing. And we don't like this prime minister and I'm opposed to their stance on this. And that's not something the queen does despite now having been on the throne for 70 years. And the monarch is supposed to remain publicly neutral, but the monarch is absolutely not publicly neutral when, when receiving a private audience with the prime minister. So, In, in the same sense as, um, you know, if, if you want to take that logic and apply it to a company, the founder is, in a sense, the prime minister, mm-hmm. and your investor, to a degree, is the monarch. So they mm-hmm. have granted you 
the capital to act freely and in a way that best benefits the investor in the same way that a prime minister cannot do anything that negatively impacts you know the crown or the people right so sometimes if you have placed if the monarch has placed their faith in the prime minister to act in a way that is most just and you know most well suited to the occasion uh no matter what the challenges may be mm-hmm. then an investor at the very least must do the same and the one thing they owe that founder especially when the founder is trying to win over their own team internally and win over their customers externally is just to shut up and only voice your concerns um when in private audience with the founder and do not intervene because there is a reason that that person is the founder and you are not right that's that's a great way of putting it honestly <laughs> i think i think it's it's very much you know founder like vc opinion i i think you know vcs as any human being are very is, is are just super opinionated and they you know specifically the types that we talked about just now um they do the the specific types we talked about now tend to slip into the whole micromanage part of things where they're basically like part of everything they'd like to know about everything and they just seem like to, seem to have a lack of trust for the founder um but yeah i think i think the approach that you just described is actually a great way of just looking at things and even that applies to any sort of management relationship as well of like say if i was running a team and i had a lead under me um i i do that too i i feel like it's a very you know there there's a reason you picked that investor there's a reason that investor picked you there's a reason you made that hire and it's it's always to to elevate not not necessarily just to give tasks for them to kind of take care of or delegate so it's like you, um, it's like hiring the captain of a ship you know to to yeah. to help you you know cross the cross the ocean and then as soon as there's choppy waters you suddenly second guess all the captain's choices it's like yeah. why did you hire them if you were going to do that exactly so so you 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 know you have to kind of stick to that gut feeling of you know i made that hire or i made that decision because of that personality and i saw that long-term relationship so i'll just sit back and just see how it unfolds but if i notice shit hitting the fan then sure like we'll step in and help but yeah i mean i think you there there's there's a lot of trust that's going to need to be built for for those types of decisions and relationships for sure yeah but yeah i hate i i really i really hate just shitty investors just yeah by the way i've never met a shitty investor who's a good person a good person i've i've met good people who i would not trust with an investment but every shitty vc investor has also been a crap human being right like ross hanneman's basically oh oh ross hanneman or socrates compared to some of these people <laughs> so no no radio on internet type talk no i'm telling you like it, it is not an exaggeration at all it said some of these people are worthy of being crammed into a cannon and fired into the sun <laughs> like they are that toxic a presence they are that awful and to think of the fact that you know from a founder's perspective is like holy shit i am stuck with this moron just because i decided to take 50 grand with him uh, i mean take 50 grand from him like 3 years ago mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it sounds like yeah sounds like a a, a shitty I guess business maybe this this it, it's a sticky situation to be in for sure and it's like it turns into I'm excited to how we can grow this business together too I can't wait till something happens and we fold so I can just end this relationship basically yeah yeah because like yeah. you know this person has driven me up the wall and I want to you know disappear to a beach in Thailand and never have a phone again yeah speaking of which I would like to disappear to a beach in Thailand and never have a phone again <laughs> uh honestly same i've i've been uh my like i've i've been getting like slight like i don't know what they're called like periods of time where you just have a lot of inner peace simply because your phone's off or your phone's away and it's just it's yeah, such yeah. a nice refresher it's just sometimes it's like uh electricity is evil <laughs> true true and i say this as a electrical engineer so who does zero electrical engineering 
yeah pretty much right <laughs> i do engineering well, still but not really well i mean i do very little economics i suppose but true i mean yeah i think both of our professors would kind of be disappointed in us a little bit the, the only <laughs> thing i i use my econ degree for is to craft my usual bomb ass tweets about something the fed said or did aside from yeah. that zero utility from that degree it just looks pretty on a wall same i didn't even get my degree so that's it's uh i mean I, I i graduated but like physically didn't get that degree so you didn't Not walk that I right anyway. i so i did but like a year later we actually did it in sofi all right so yeah. where where the super bowl is going to be played yeah. today go bengals hours, actually go bengals I'm, I'm, I'm on the Rams side but we'll see we'll see how that oh <laughs> well i'm just sad the patriots didn't make it but we'll see Dude, the Patriots aren't going to make it again until you're 70 years old. Really? I mean, I, I'm kind of, I'm, my hopes are up for Mac Jones. I think he's a, he's a, he's a tight, like he's a good player. I mean, he he's good, but he has, I mean, monstrously huge shoes to fill. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're taking over for TB12. The TB12. Yeah. Right. The, the man in the arena. The GOAT. The goat. Crazy times. Man, I can't believe you retired. That's pretty scary. Yeah. I'm 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 sad about that. But I'm happy of like, you know, Joe Burrow, Matt Stafford, uh, Patrick Mahomes. Like there's a new era of NFL quarterbacks that are coming in right now, and you're sensing it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I'm I'm excited to see where where you know. What what that does make me sad is that the, the current uh, quote unquote best active quarterback is is Aaron Rodgers. Oh, true. <laughs> yeah, dude, four MVPs. Damn. <laughs> Whatever. I mean. <laughs> oh well. Kind of interested to see where Jimmy G winds up next year, but oh, true. Jimmy G. But, but yeah. um, yeah. What is uh? Bang- what's the rest Bengals. of your? Uh... Indeed, in Rams, maybe we'll see. No, Bengals. we'll see in a couple of hours. <laughs> um, Isn't it weird that you know they're they're playing at home? True. Like, we yeah. we went from that never ever happening in a Super Bowl to happening happening twice in in two years, because yeah. uh, uh, Brady's final Super Bowl was you know the Bucks at home, right? Right. True. And I'm looking forward to this. it. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. But uh, what does what does the rest of your uh, week look like? Uh, I I really don't know. Well, first of all, we all need to test negative again to safely oh, leave the house. That's a good point. And then, and then we'll see. I have fires to put out, but great investors to do it with. So I'm happy. Yay! Yeah, we have to throw yeah. that caveat in now because I think some of your investors are going to listen to this. <laughs> like, what is he? Is he talking about us? <laughs> yeah i think it's definitely gonna happen i'm gonna yeah. get a couple of dms for sure yeah no guys it's it's not about you i'm on the no, same you... cap table as you i guarantee you nothing we said was about you nothing bad we said was about you yes exactly we have All glorious right. species <laughs> the best the best all right peace all righty <laughs>